Radhika Jones, Editor-in-Chief of Vanity Fair. If you enjoy binge-watching the best TV shows and love hearing from the actors and showrunners who make them happen, then subscribe to Vanity Fair. Our Hollywood reporters take you behind the scenes of the year's most anticipated projects, the industry's biggest moves, and the hardest-fought awards races. From The Crown to The Real Housewives, we've got the inside scoop. As a special thank you to our still-watching audience, we're offering 15% off a yearly digital subscription to Vanity Fair. Visit VanityFair.com today and use promo code POD15. That's VanityFair.com, promo code POD15, for 15% off a yearly digital subscription to everything you want. This episode is brought to you by Progressive Insurance. Whether you love true crime or comedy, celebrity interviews or news, you call the shots on what's in your podcast queue. And guess what? Now you can call them on your auto insurance, too, with the Name Your Price tool from Progressive. It works just the way it sounds. You tell Progressive how much you want to pay for car insurance, and they'll show you coverage options that fit your budget. Get your quote today at Progressive.com to join the over 28 million drivers who trust Progressive. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. Price and coverage match limited by state law. AI is making waves in every field it touches. President Biden is now on TikTok and the election draws closer each day. With so much going on in the world, it is hard to keep up with it all, let me tell you. Hi, I'm Kai Rizdal, the co-host of Make Me Smart. It's a podcast from Marketplace. And every weekday, Kimberly Adams and I break down the latest in business and the economy with short daily episodes to make it easy for you to stay in the know. Listen to Make Me Smart wherever you get your podcasts. And welcome to Still Watching, a weekly podcast from Vanity Fair. I'm Vanity Fair chief critic Richard Lawson. On this season of Still Watching, we'll be covering House of the Dragon, a new HBO series that's a prequel to maybe the biggest HBO show of all time, Game of Thrones. House of the Dragon premieres on Sunday, August 21st, and we'll have a recap episode the next day and every Monday after that until the series finale on October 24th, or season finale, one, one would hope anyway. Uh, but before all that, uh, we wanted to do a little preview just to set the table for what's to come. It's been a while since we wandered the world of Westeros and beyond, and I don't know about you, but I'm feeling a little rusty. House of the Dragon promises to be full of lore and intrigue, much more than one person can unpack on their own. To that end, I've enlisted a co-host, one who is both a podcast extraordinaire and a Game of Thrones expert, I'm told. <laughs> and that's Josh Wiggler. Hello, Josh. Hello, Richard. I told you that you were supposed to take care of your Valyrian sword so it does not get rusty. Um, oh, shoot. There's that- a very serious process involved in making sure the rust doesn't gather. I only got to like page five of the of the manual. <laughs> of the manual, I guess. yeah. <laughs> it's in the books. It's actually in um, uh, book six, which is uh, still yet to be published. So, oh, okay, uh, you, you can go. be forgiven. I'll have to go you to New Mexico and rifle through George R. R. Martin's desk. To- <laughs> yes, yes. Uh, no, I'm really, really excited to be here. Thank you, Richard, for the kind introduction. Game of Thrones expert, I suppose we will see. Uh, Game of Thrones veteran for sure. 
Um, I have been covering Game of Thrones since the inception of this show. Uh, first back at MTV News way back in the day when season one uh, was first coming out uh, in the last several years for the final few seasons of Game of Thrones. I was covering the show for The Hollywood Reporter. Uh, I also podcast about it a ton, still do, over at Post Show Recaps, my podcast network. Um, so I have a, a long track record of living in this world, talking about this world. Uh, expertise, I, I leave that to, uh, to, to George R. R. Martin himself, but a, a fascinated party who has commentated on it a bunch and has read a ton about it as well. Uh, I, I certainly think that that uh, fits the bill. So I'm really excited to dive back into it. I know that there are a lot of questions about, is anyone excited about this? Who's excited about this? I'll tell you why I'm excited about it. Uh, I'm really, really excited about it. And so I'm uh, beyond thrilled to be joining the Vanity Fair team and uh, still watching and getting to do this with you, Richard, is a, is a real pleasure for me. Yeah, we're, we're happy to have you. Um, but I want to remind the listeners that this is not just a two-person conversation. Uh, we want to hear from you comments, questions, theories, uh, corrections, even. I'm sure there will be those to be given uh, as the season goes on. Um, and if you want to get in touch with us, you can email us at stillwatchingpod at gmail.com. Uh, we will try to uh, you know read those as, in as timely a fashion as possible and then you know perhaps answer or address things. Hi, I'm Michael Calori, the co-host of Wired's Gadget Lab. And I'm Lauren Good, the other co-host of Wired's Gadget Lab. Get ready to dive deep into the cultural phenomenon that's been shaping conversations, sparking movements, and breaking barriers for over a decade. The new three-part docuseries, Black Twitter, A People's History, based on the groundbreaking Wired cover story by Jason Parham, explores everything from the fun, games, and inside jokes that characterize the early years of Black Twitter, to the social movements, the voices and the hashtags that made Black Twitter an influential force in nearly every aspect of American political culture. Join us as we unravel the threads of this digital community, tracing its origins, celebrating its triumphs, and exploring its impact on society at large. Watch the series from Onyx Collective in association with Wired Studios, premiering on Hulu on May 9th. Apple Card is the perfect cash back rewards credit card. You can earn up to 3% daily cash on every purchase every day. That's 3% on your favorite products at Apple, 2% on all other Apple Card with Apple Pay purchases, and 1% on anything you buy with your titanium Apple Card or virtual card number. Visit apple.co slash card calculator to see how much you can earn. Apple Card issued by Goldman Sachs Bank USA, Salt Lake City Branch. Subject to credit approval. Terms apply. On the air. All right, so... Josh, to kick, to kick things off, I'm going to ask you I, what I hope is a simple, maybe one sentence answer question. What is House of the Dragon about? Dragons. Okay. How about a one word answer? There you uh, go. <laughs> I mean, so I, I think there are some reductive ways to describe House of the Dragon that could kind of shorthand this thing. Uh, I think you could describe House of the Dragon as Game of Thrones meets Succession. I think you could describe House of the Dragon as Game of Thrones meets The Crown. Um, I think that this is a show that hopefully those, those comparisons evoke the idea that House of the Dragon is in many ways, I think, going to be leaning in on some of the best stuff from Game of Thrones, which is the King's Landing of it all. You know, the wheeling and dealing, the politicking, the jockeying for the Iron Throne. That's really the business on this new show that is set several, uh, several years before the start of Game of Thrones, about two centuries, roughly, before Game of Thrones. So it's a prequel, The Iron Throne, 
back in play. Someone is sitting in it right now when we begin House of the Dragon. Uh, if uh, I guess if future is prologue, uh, Richard, I think it's not unreasonable to suggest that maybe some other people will uh, be sitting on the Iron Throne at different points in this show. Uh, and that is essentially, you know, the very sort of like top down look at what you can uh, expect. You know, it's going to have the, the the world of Game of Thrones. It's going to have names that are familiar to you if you were a Game of Thrones fan, certainly in terms of the, the various houses. You'll hear of a Lannister. You'll spot a Stark here and there. But by and large, it's the Targaryen show where Game of Thrones had the one Targaryen and then a couple of others here and there and where it only had the three dragons. This is the show with a, you know, a veritable small army of Targaryens. It's actually not that small. It's a pretty significant army and a pretty significant number of dragons as well. Yeah, I mean, based on the the couple trailers that have been released, um, you know, they make it clear uh, that this is a pretty King's Landing focused show. But it's not just the trailers, because this is based on a book. You know, while everyone is clamoring for George R. R. Martin to finish the original Song of Ice and Fire uh, books, he, he in 2018, he published Fire and Blood. So I, my understanding, correct me if I'm wrong, is that at least this season is a pretty direct adaptation of that book. Is that correct? So it's like partly correct. Um, okay. So it's got it's complicated when it comes to George R. R. Martin and books. It's always complicated. That's the relationship status right now. Um, so it is taking its cues from Fire and Blood. This is this, uh, this you know, fictional history book that George R. R. Martin wrote. Um, it is presented from the perspective of a maester of Old Town within Westeros, chronicling the history of the Targaryen dynasty and leaning on um, the, the sources that are available to him in that capacity to tell this story. So from the jump, it's a it's a story from an unreliable narrator. Uh, you know, it is a it is told from the perspective um, of somebody who was not there during the specific events of the initial arrival of the Targaryens to Westeros, all the way through to the appointment of Robert Baratheon as the king, where we uh, kick things off on on Game of Thrones. So Fire and Blood begins with the first Targaryen king. It spends many hundreds of pages dealing with him. Uh, his two uh, predecessors, or sorry, his two successors to the Iron Throne shortly after his reign. That's a pretty bloody and violent tale. After those three kings are off the map, there is a wise old king named Jaharis Targaryen uh, who reigns over Westeros for a period of relative peace and prosperity for somewhere north of 50 years. And by the end of it, while the, while the, the Seven Kingdoms have thrived and while there's been a lot of great changes to infrastructure... And, uh, you know, all of the all of like the creature comforts that uh, these people in Westeros know, such as they know creature comforts are largely thanks to the initial work by this specific king. He has a lot of personal tragedy. He has a lot of uh, a lot of really unfortunate things befall him and his family. And it leaves him in a position where there isn't a very clear heir to the Iron Throne. Uh, So I think this will either be at the very start of the show or this will be the like immediate background material that's worth having the context on heading into House of the Dragon, is that there's this big, you know, think survivor, tribal council, essentially, to decide who is going to be the winner of the Iron Throne. There's a couple of candidates, the Lords of Westeros vote, and overwhelmingly, Patty Considine's character, Viserys Targaryen, who is going to be the king when we hit House of the Dragon, is appointed the heir to the Iron Throne. Um, and spinning out from that is is where we go with House of the Dragon. That in the book, Fire and Blood, happens right around like 400 or so pages in. So if you crack open into Fire and Blood and you're reading Aegon's Conquest 
and you're like, oh man, Oris Baratheon's going to be really fun to see on TV. He's not going to be there, unfortunately. You have to read until about halfway through the book to start interacting with the characters that are going to be on this show. I see. And that way, HBO setting, they could do a prequel to the prequel. Of the well, first they, they really could. I mean, yeah. I think I think that there has been some talk in, you know, uh, the people involved with the show right now, they're clearly making the rounds, they're gearing up, uh, the press machine is in full swing. Um, Ryan J. Condal and Miguel Sapochnik, who are the showrunners of House of the Dragon, are out here saying that, yeah, this could get anthological at a certain point, that the story that's being told now does not have to be the only story of House of the Dragon. So it could move forwards. It could move backwards. That's in success. And success with this show is obviously a very big question in its own right. I want to zoom out a little bit and, and think about, you know, potential audience for this show. Obviously, Game of Thrones, a huge international sensation, lots of fans, maybe lost some by the end. But a show that I think did an interesting trick of both rewarding those who knew the lore, who'd read the books, and the casual viewer who is just in it for, you know, pithy lines from Diana Rigg or, you know, a couple sword fights here and there. Right. This show, uh, House of the Dragon, in its shrinking down into a King's Landing dynastic struggle versus Game of Thrones, which had people far flung in the east and the north and all over the place, all kind of coming together around one central, almost apocalyptic storyline with, you know, the White Walkers and everything. I'm curious to hear your thoughts on whether you think House of the Dragon benefits from that smallness in attracting audiences who are not that familiar with lore? Or do you think this is really a kind of diehard fan show? I'm, I'm very interested in that question myself, because having, having read the, the story that this is based on, and just to quickly go back to that, while the story that's being adapted for this show takes place hundreds of pages into Fire and Blood, the book, the scope of what this show seems to be angling at is fully told within Fire and Blood. Um, so the characters that we're going to meet on Sunday night, uh, on August 21st, uh, we, are going to, uh, we are going to know, if you've read the books, how stories end for just about everybody that you see. So unlike Game of Thrones, there is the complete story. There is the complete text that exists underneath that. I just want to put that out there because that might be very good news uh, for a lot of the people who felt like the show ran off the rails once there was no more runway provided by George R. R. Martin's source material on Game of Thrones. This has the runway. This has a complete shape of a story. We know where it's going if you've read Fire and Blood. That being said, I'm really curious about your question as well, Richard, um, about whether or not this is sort of a, a, a niche story, you know, maybe a little bit too granular for the average Game of Thrones fan. And I think it's, it's going to be a little hard to say until we see how they render that first episode. With that being said, I know that I'm talking about King's Landing political intrigue being sort of the bread and butter of this show. And I do think that in a, in a major way, this is going to be the thing. You know, the quest for the Iron Throne, once again, you can already see the promotional materials of them putting, uh, in your head anyway, of putting so many different people on the Iron Throne. Like, this will be the thing that is in pursuit throughout this series, uh, the thing that is being defended, the thing that is being coveted. But there are also so many dragons. It is just worth repeating, <laughs> there are so many dragons. And I don't know the extent to which those dragons will start barking here in season one, but if this show is sticking to the script of the book as written, there will be barking uh, at some point in time. So I think that a lot of the, the action intrigue of the show as well, of Game of Thrones, is very much in full swing here. 
Um, and I think maybe the thing that it benefits from the most is this this sort of centering on King's Landing. Uh, if we're looking at the geography of Westeros, I don't know how long it's been since any of you out there have been looking at the map, but King's Landing, it's further south than the north. Uh, it is further south than Winterfell and the Wall and therefore the White Walkers, which I know is a really divisive part of how Game of Thrones ended. They should have little to do here on House of the Dragon. There's a chance that there's a mention of a White Walker or two. Uh, they'll be you know, surprising me quite a bit if there's much more than that, uh, than a mention or two of the White Walkers. But the thing that was really controversial, I feel like, towards the end of Game of Thrones, like the swift dealing with this existential threat, that's not really here. Uh, so I think that the stakes are pretty clear on this show. And the scope is also, I think, standing to be pretty impressive as well. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I think that, you know, Game of Thrones, especially in the early seasons, what was so captivating, well, in the books as well, obviously, is that sense of important, uh, something is coming, you know, winter's coming, the, 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 these people, these entities from the north are coming, and, and, and it, there was a sort of mythos, a sort of supernatural element. This seems uh, House of the Dragon much more rooted in, like, human conflict, not that Game of Thrones wasn't. So I'll be curious to see how the the people who liked game of thrones for all of the supernatural stuff will be satisfied by this or you know um i mean i should mention you you talked about the dragons I, i'm told uh, in press notes that i've read that there are four main dragons one is a kind of sassy new york uh uh newspaper columnist the yep. other's a lawyer yes uh, a gallery owner and a publicist right and they're kind of That's friends right. and yeah so yeah so, and i don't want to spoil it but one of them ends up uh, working for a sprinkler company in florida by the end of the show so right, uh, right. it's a pretty tragic <laughs> fall for that one yeah yeah um so uh, let's um let's talk specifics about who this show is about you mentioned patty constantine who who plays uh king viserys who at yeah. the start of this season which by the way you and i have not watched we should tell the viewer we are getting Correct. screeners at some point but we are we are as blind you know uh pretty much uh in the dark as you all it's exciting are. buzz i'll say uh yeah. you know a lot of a lot of people who have seen who are at premieres who have reported back um i'm i'm re I, i'm trying not to get overly optimistic richard it's getting <laughs> yeah. a little hard for me though uh people seem to really enjoy that first episode but it's good it's good to be excited um yes. so we have him on the throne they there is a question of succession who's going to take over one obvious answer would be princess rainera who is his daughter uh played by yes. emma darcy uh she's maybe what tween age early teens so it's interesting. Uh, so um, Rhaenyra Targaryen, and this is why I evoke the crown in some ways, at least, not just because Matt Smith is also on this show, uh, that we are going to be seeing different actors portraying certain characters across periods of time. Um, Princess Rhaenyra is one of those. So when we meet Princess Rhaenyra, and I believe that this is being told in chronological order without flashbacks, could be wrong on that. We'll see how it bears out. Um, initially, Rainer is going to be played by uh, Millie Alcock is right. the name of the young actor who's going to be bringing her to life. And I don't think that that's just for a scene. I think that's going to be for, you know, several chunks of story. You know, we could be several episodes in before we get Emma Darcy, who uh, they are going to be playing Rainer as an adult. Um, but yes, this is Princess Rainer. This is Viserys's daughter. This is one of, um, you know, the, the real jewels in the eye of King Viserys. Uh, a very beloved princess in the Seven Kingdoms. People really are, are are huge fans of Rhaenyra, and I think if you're if you're looking for your Daenerys analog, I think that this is probably the one. Right, right. Um, I now am wondering if, not knowing the structure of the show, 
if we might get older Rhaenyra scenes and younger, you know, kind of like two timelines. I, I kind of hope that's not what they're doing, but yeah, you'll have to go to Reddit to see if you can't piece together which <laughs> okay. one is uh, the crown in black. Yeah. Right. So you mentioned Matt Smith, uh, beloved of, you know, genre nerds the world over. Um, he was a Doctor Who, right? Yeah, he, he was. Wait, when you when you say it like that, that he was a Doctor Who, is this a confession that you're not a Doctor Who person? So my boyfriend got me into Doctor Who during the deepest depths of the pandemic, and I watched the couple of the early seasons with um, Eccleston. Um, yes. But I didn't make it to Matt Smith. But I know he all of a sudden Matt Smith was just famous, you know, about 15 yeah. years ago. And I was like, from what? And then it was, it and was I've this. subsequently seen him in a lot of things, including Morbius, which I thought he was very good in. And he I was one of the few the positive part. reviews of that movie. <laughs> I mean, no one was having more fun in Morbius yeah. than Matt Smith, other than maybe the people who forced Sony to put it in theaters twice. Um, so uh, Matt Smith, I'm I'm also not a major Doctor Who uh, person. I just started watching some of it because I wanted to, you know, get a little bit more acquainted with Matt Smith's most famous role. Uh, and so I just watched the 11th hour, his first episode, and God, I really loved it. So I'm gonna have to find some time to manage my Doctor Who watch while we have House of the Dragon online. So wish me luck in that endeavor. But yeah, he is playing, I think, a character who is going to be a huge breakout from this show. Um, Matt Smith is playing Prince Damon Targaryen, and he is, as we enter this, uh, the heir presumptive to the Iron Throne. Um, at this point, he is the next in line of succession. Viserys Targaryen, his brother, does not have a male heir. Uh, and so as it stands, Damon would be the person who would step up to become king. And that, from the perspective of certain parties in Westeros, could be quite, uh, quite bad. It would be bad. Uh, he is sort of a... You know, he's a bit of he's a bit of a rogue. He is known as the rogue prince. Uh, and I feel like calling him a bit of a rogue is really nicening up the the behavior of this guy. He can be very violent. He can be very hedonistic. Uh, and he is not always the nicest guy in the room and yet very, very captivating. So I think we probably the closest comparison is a Jamie Lannister type uh, with maybe even a little bit of a rougher edge to him. Or a Cersei in there, too, a kind of villain yep. we root for in a perverse way. Kind yeah, of thing. he's the Lannister twins combined. Yeah, yeah. I wonder what they were doing 200 years prior vis-a-vis -vis shame nuns, you know, like maybe, <laughs> maybe they used a different word, a different a, a cowbell more rather than a, I don't know. Yeah, I think if you're bringing anyone from Game of Thrones back to House of the Dragon, I would be totally fine to just see Hannah Waddingham just travel back through time to shame sure. someone yeah, would be fine. Yeah. You know, why not? A yeah. long tradition of, of shaming uh, yes. in Westeros. A character that, um, and I'm just, I'll be honest, looking at the Wikipedia page, um, that I'm really curious about because I like this actor, Olivia Cook. She's playing Alicent Hightower, who yes. is the first person we've talked about who is not part of this family. So I think that's where the, you know, we are in a sort of cloistered courtly world here, but it can widen out to include non-Targaryen people. And I'm really curious to see how the the people who are, you know, trying to jockey for power, little finger style. They know they're not going to actually be on the throne probably ever, but like they want to be as adjacent to it as possible. So I'm very intrigued about Alicent Hightower. Yeah, so there is, you know, it, it's the Targaryen show. It is the House of the Dragon, but it is not just the Targaryens. And there definitely are characters from other houses, certainly houses that you know. Uh, there's going to be, uh, you know, one or two at least Lannisters including yet another set of Lannister twins, believe it or not, that are going to be important to this story as we are moving forward. Um, we are going to be focusing, I think, more on houses that 
we are not as familiar with. Certainly the Targaryens, we are familiar with their reputation, but let's see what that looks like in practice. These dragon riding people who, when you flip a coin, either they're cool or they're severely uncool. Uh, so we're going to see how that plays out. Um, the High Towers are another important family in this story. Um, so Olivia Cook, who is playing Alison Hightower, uh, as a young person, she will be played by Emily Carey. Uh, so yet another indication of sort of the generational story that's being told here. She is the daughter of Otto Hightower, uh, who is played by Reese Ifans, uh, you know, most recent of the of the Spider-Man No Way Home blockbuster, but forever the kicker and the replacements in my heart. Uh, and he is ostensibly the hand of the king. Uh, he is going to be Viserys Targaryen's right-hand person. And if anyone in this show hates Daemon Targaryen, no one hates him more, I think, than Sir Otto Hightower. So expect a lot of fireworks between Matt Smith and Reese Ifans' characters. I think that that's going to be a really contentious relationship to watch. Alicent's role within all of that, I feel like I have to be a little careful here, Richard. Uh, okay. I feel like I have to be a little careful here because we don't know the way that the show is going to bear out. And I don't know when you want to start like drawing from you know the specifics of the books, if ever. But I definitely feel like when we get to those points, if we want to go down those conversational alleyways, I will feel most comfortable giving a fairly significant spoiler warning on that stuff. That's one of the tricks of, of this story, I think, is with the later seasons of Game of Thrones, we could make reasonable predictions based on things that hadn't been um, put on the show, but were still you know, remnants of A Dance with Dragons, the fifth book, uh, chapters that we knew from the sixth book that still remains unpublished, but those excerpts have been released. And just like reasonable predictions, I think, of some fan theories. Like the R plus L equals J was a foregone conclusion that Jon Snow was a Targaryen. Here, the theorizing is a little trickier because the story is complete. Uh, so we do know where a lot of these characters are going. We do know how this ends for a bunch of them. And I think that Allison specifically her journey and what it is that she brings to this particular tale and this story of succession and this story of the Targaryens sort of feeling each other out and peacocking about King's Landing and one-upping each other to see who can land in the highest spot. We've all been there before. You're planning a dinner party or having family over or even just cooking for yourself when all of a sudden it starts to feel overwhelming. Uh, I live in a very small one-bedroom apartment with a very small kitchen. I can't figure out what to serve besides water soup at this point. I'm Chris Morocco, food director of Bon Appetit and Epicurious, and this is Dinner SOS, a new podcast from Bon Appetit. Maybe it's a last-minute party with no menu inspiration, a kitchen with no space, a toddler who will only eat buttered pasta, Name your dinner emergency, we're here to help. Here's how the show works. On each episode, we'll take a call from a home cook facing a real dinner emergency. Then I'll work with one of our editors or someone from our amazing test kitchen to try and solve it. Because cooking for the people you love should inspire joy without a side of stress. Make sure you're following Dinner SOS wherever you're listening now. She has a really, really big role in that. So. Before we wrap up, I, I, you mentioned the later seasons of Game of Thrones, which, you know, as has been alluded to already on this episode, was where things maybe got a bit rickety for fans, not only just of the books, but like people who would just watch the show and didn't know anything about the text that they were based on. Even they were like, things seem to be a little bit less tight here. Um, and then the series finale happened. A lot of people called it like they ruined this brand. They, it's the worst series finale ever. You know, there were a lot of feelings about it. I'm sure some people love it as well. 
as a Lost fan, I was thrilled to have the heat taken off of my there favorite show. Exactly. I have to tell you that. <laughs> same. Very much yeah. same. Yeah. Um, so where do you think, Josh, like from a from a sort of programming perspective, what does H- what does this show need to be for HBO to like rescue the brand if it indeed right. is that tarnished? Like, because I, I think well, there seems to be a weird mix of both really high expectations for this and people who are like, oh, no, I'm not going back to that. I'm not going to be disappointed. So talk to me a little bit about what you think the needle that they have to thread here is. It's it's a it's a tight thread. It's a tight eye of the needle. The eye is closing uh, and they really have to they really have to get through. Um, I I am interested in who is coming back for this. Uh, the you know the people on the streets. Uh, you know the people who I'm surveying, many of whom are you know book reading fans of Game of Thrones. Some who were just Game of Thrones diehards. Some who were Game of Thrones casuals. I think actually it's a lot of the the casual Game of Thrones fans that I'm talking to who uh, felt like they they got burned and don't really want to check this out. A lot of the people I am talking to, um, there's a small contingent of people who I think are really without any reservation super excited about this. Um, the majority of people I know who are, you know, people who would be watching this show under normal circumstances are ready to give it an episode. They want to give it a shot. They want to see how the episode does. So I think a lot qualitatively is riding on this premiere. They really have to put their best foot forward here, HBO does, because in success, House of the Dragon leads to other Game of Thrones successor shows for HBO. And it's something that they probably really, really need. Uh, Game of Thrones was, to your point earlier at the start of the pod, uh, their biggest show ever. Uh, and it ended the way that it did. And it ended in a way where, you know, the it's it's very easy to to dunk on it uh, and to egg it. And so it's it's a it's a tricky thing. That the reputation is what it is, but the accolades are what they are as well behind Game of Thrones. And I think that it has to perform at a level that it's not going to hit the like the viewership highs of Game of Thrones right off the bat. I think HBO's uh, uh, very own Casey Bloys has been pretty clear about the expectations are a little different. Uh, the numbers that they're looking at are adjusted and that they also have their hand hovering over the green light button for a second season. It has not yet been greenlit for a second season. I feel like they are uh, ready to turn the key when they see the metrics that they need to see. It's an interesting time for HBO and it Warner is. Media and HBO Max. Uh, and so I think that certain people, uh, you know, in certain times, maybe, you know, even a, a few months ago, Richard, a second season of House of the Dragon would be like an automatic thing, I would think, you know, almost, uh, you know, irregardless of how this ends up uh, you know, performing uh, metrically. I think that with some of the new people sitting on the proverbial Iron Throne, this has to do pretty well because the game plan is, in success of this, more shows. Not just House of the Dragon. It's that strange Jon Snow sequel we've heard about. Uh, there is a, a planned or developing at least prequel centering on one of the characters from this show, from House of the Dragon. And that's the direction that I think they want to take it. We will know whether or not it is a reasonable bet to take on another Game of Thrones franchise show after we see how this one is performing. Yeah, and 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 speaking of of you know time and 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 you know uh, this legacy, I, I think an interesting thing to think about as we go forward, um, kind of analyzing the show week to week, is that Game of Thrones, if you can believe it, premiered the, the original series premiered over eleven years ago, and in that time, we have seen. We were all kind of in the midst of it then, but it's but even more so now. Huge shifts in cultural mores, in ideas about representation and diversity, and what's you know what 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 our art is supposed to be doing or not supposed to be doing. 
And I'll be curious to see what a 2022, or I guess filmed in 2021, whatever, version of this violent, misogynistic, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera, world looks like once it's filtered through some of that. I mean, already from the trailer, it looks like we're getting a more diverse cast than we certainly had uh, in Game of Thrones. Um, But I don't know beyond that. I've heard whispers on the wind that this is a very violent show. Um, yeah. And I'm curious how that violence will be processed. So I, I don't know. I think the world was in a very different place, obviously, uh, when the original show premiered. And we'll see how um, a new a return to Westeros is is greeted um, right. by the people of 2022. Yeah, I think it's a really good point, and I think it's really important to bring up. Um, so I'm I'm very compelled by the story that is told in the book that this show is taking most of its cues from. Uh, I'm also really excited about the people uh, who are running this thing. Mm-hmm. Uh, Miguel Sapochnik, who directed some of the greatest episodes of Game of Thrones, certainly in that back half of Game of Thrones, uh, Battle of the Bastards, The Winds of Winter, uh, really phenomenal filmmaker. And as one of the showrunners here, I really trust the vision of this, literally what it's going to look like. I think it's going to I think it's going to be really impressive. I also really am a big fan of uh, Ryan Condal, who is the other showrunner on this, co-created it with George R. R. Martin, handpicked by Martin. They had a friendship that predated this. Uh, Martin, uh, the story goes, came to Ryan Condal during a dinner meeting. This was in the big Hollywood Reporter profile on House of the Dragon. Uh, And the next day, Ryan Condal had a phone call from his agent saying, hey, are you show running House of the Dragon? Uh, So a big leap of of faith uh, or a vote of confidence, at least from George R. R. Martin. And I will take every opportunity that I possibly can to say that Ryan Condal's Colony, uh, the USA Network show that none of you watched, was really terrific and fantastic. And I think the sensibilities of that show, uh, for me, give me a sense of how he operates as a storyteller. So I really love the way that he operates as a storyteller. But those are just two names of of many. Um, You know, I think in certainly the the later stages of Game of Thrones, one of the the criticisms that you can lob at it uh, is how how much of a monopoly David Benioff and D.B. Weiss had on the scene. Um, You know, they were, you know, with some exceptions, they were the writers, you know, they they, uh, took on a lot of directing towards the end. They were on set. They were living and breathing this thing in a way that I still felt like, I felt like at the time and still feel like, obviously really would have benefited from, from a lot of outside voices and certainly a lot of voices that were not like their own. Um, this is a more diverse lineup, both in front of and behind uh, the camera. There are a lot of women who are uh, on the writing staff. It is not just uh, you know white dude central here on House of the Dragon. And I think that's really important to get into a story that's going to, if it's done well and if it's done right, it's going to have to deal with um, you know, systemic oppression from the patriarchy. That is a very big theme in the story of House of the Dragon. Uh, and I think that they've got a team assembled that feels to me just you know, going through the credits of the people who are involved. I think that they're up for the challenge. And I think it's really nice to see a lot of this represented on screen as well. Um, you know, Emma Darcy as a non-binary person playing Rhaenyra Targaryen. Uh, that's very exciting to me. Uh, Steve Toussaint, whose name I hope I'm pronouncing correctly, he is the Sea Snake, uh, the first black actor in a lead role uh, in a Game of Thrones show. The Sea Snake is the character, the aforementioned character that they are thinking about some form of prequel around. So he's exciting. He's really cool. uh, And I think that they're going to have a lot of fun with that character. So I think in, in meaningful ways, the beats of House of the Dragon and the story that it is adapting have a lot of similarities to the beats in the story that was being told of Game of Thrones. There will be a little bit of a sense of that Battlestar Galactica thing of all of this has happened before, all of this has happened again. 
Um, but I feel like it will feel different in some really important ways um, that I'm excited for. As to the violence, there's just no sugarcoating it, Richard. This is going to be violent. Yeah. It's going to be dark. <laughs> yeah. It's going to be uh, depressing. Yeah. Uh, be prepared to say goodbye to your favorites with regularity. There are some events in this period of time that make the Red Wedding look like a tea party. So it's going to get really intense. Um, and with all that we have gone through, with all that we are going through, whether or not you want to put yourself through that in your form of escapist pop culture media, totally your call to make. But you should make that call knowing these things are very much in play. A lot of the things that often made Game of Thrones hard to watch, very much alive and well in House of the Dragon, I think, no matter what. I don't know what it says about me, but that kind of makes me more grimly excited. I don't know. But um, all right. Well, um, well, because it'll have something yeah. to say, right? You <laughs> right. know, exactly. Yeah, that's good. Um, so, yeah, we'll we'll be back on um, August 22nd with a recap episode of the first uh, the, the premiere episode. Um, before we go, uh, let's do a little predicting. Josh, how many minutes into the to the first episode do you think we're going to see a dragon? Oh, gosh. If we don't see a dragon in the first five minutes, I will be angry and I will shut off the TV and I will walk away from this podcast prematurely. No, uh, we'll get a, We'll get a dragon within, I think, 10 minutes, 10 okay. minutes, 10 minutes tops is my take. I'm going to say first 30 seconds. It opens. We hear the sound of the wings flapping and then one flies by and we're, we're in it. That's, I'm ready for yeah. that. I think <laughs> okay. that that's the way this has to go. You know, and I and I actually really love that juxtaposition of the first scene of Game of Thrones ever is very White Walker heavy. That's the ice. Let's begin this one with some fire. There you go. Uh, well, in the meantime, uh, if you have any predictive questions or concerns or anything like that, again, you can email us at stillwatchingpod at gmail.com. You can read about House of the Dragon on VF.com, including Josh's recaps. Uh, and some other coverage as the season goes on. Uh, and then, Josh, where can people find you online separate of all this? Yes, uh, you can find me on Twitter. At Round Howard is my Twitter handle. Uh, I have often said, like, Ron Howard, but rounder. Uh, <laughs> I have since retired that way of describing my t- Twitter handle. But for the still-watching crowd, as I am saying hello for the first time, I feel like it's easier to, to remember it that way. So, at Round Howard, wherever you can find me, I will be tweeting out, my recaps of House of the Dragon here on VF. Any other breakouts along the way, I will be, uh, I'll be, I'll be sounding the horn. It'll be hard to miss if you're following me there. Okay, good. And I will be at Rylaws, R-I-L-A-W-S. This episode was edited and produced by Dave Gonzalez. And until next week, I don't know, happy dragon hunting. I'm David Remnick, host of the New Yorker Radio Hour. There's nothing like finding a story you can really sink into that lets you tune out the noise and focus on what matters. In print or here on the podcast, the New Yorker brings you thoughtfulness and depth and even humor that you can't find anywhere else. So please join me every week for the New Yorker Radio Hour, wherever you listen to podcasts.